lollygag the ball around the infield. You lollygag your way down to first. You lollygag in and out of the dugout. Do you know what that makes you? Larry? Lollygaggers. Lollygaggers. What's our record, Larry? Eight and sixteen? Eight sixteen. How'd we ever win eight? It's a miracle. It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, the inventor of the urinal cake and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. So, Coach, did you recognize that scene? Of course, that is Bull Durham in the locker room. The coaches were irate. Why? Because their team was underperforming and they were struggling. Uh, And, of course, the whole movie is about how they made the epic comeback thanks to a couple of star players. And whether or not you have those star players or not in your program is kind of beside the point. What we want to talk about today is the idea of what it takes and and what is the best way to revitalize a program, to turn it around, to take over a new program and institute uh, some new winning ways, or if you're a coach that's been at a program for quite a while, but just has the desire to to say, you know what, this, this needs to go in a different direction. We can be better than this. What are the secrets to turning a program around? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do it. One of the great things about this podcast is that we can take the time to talk to a variety of different coaches on how they do their job. What is their secret to their success? And we're going to talk to a Division I coach today who took over a program about 18 months ago, and she is in the process of turning it around and doing some amazing things. And certainly, her way is not the only way to do it, but we wanted to give you a peek at how one coach took on the task of turning a program around and is being successful at it. And actually, we're talking to her without her having completed that process completely. She is still in the uh, the works, and, and it's not quite done yet. But she's headed in a good direction, and we're very privileged to talk to her. And we'll tell you more about the coach and the program that she's involved with later on. That's during uh, the interview here on The Big Show. We wanted to also mention uh, for all of you coaches who have asked about our workshops, because we mention on Twitter a lot and sometimes we'll tweet from different workshop locations where we're on college campuses working with a college athletic department. We would love to come to your school. I would love to spend time on your campus with your staff, your athletic department. Uh, The thing that you need to do is have your athletic director email me dan at dantutor.com, or you can certainly do that, uh, Coach, if you want to represent and uh, and kind of uh, take up that project for your athletic department. Uh, we are setting up our schedule for the first half of 2017 right now. We would love to include you on the tour. Uh, we have been exceptionally busy this fall, I think because of all of the changes and the earlier recruiting calendars that are now uh, seemingly in place 
uh, with, with lots of college programs and college coaches. And recruiting has changed. And to allow us to come in, do research with your school, do a lot of focus group testing with your school, and then turn that around and give you suggested strategies for how to implement better recruiting methodologies, we love doing that. Love spending time face-to-face -face with coaches. So uh, please, please mention to your athletic director uh, in your next meeting to put us on your schedule for 2017. You can also find out more information about that. Just look at our workshop link at dantutor.com. Before we get to our interview, I also wanted to kind of talk about something that is making the social media rounds these last few days. And that is uh, a, uh, a post-game riff. I'm not going to call it a rant. It wasn't a rant. It was a little bit of just a, a sidebar riff that a Division I coach at the University of Louisville, their women's basketball coach, Jeff Walls, fantastic coach. He's built a great program. But in this press conference, it came after they lost their second game in a row. And so, as you might imagine, like any good coach, he's not going to be happy about losing their second game in a row. But... I think what, ex what especially upset him was how their team lost. And as you'll hear him talk about in, the, in this press conference as he was addressing the media, he felt like their team just didn't have the will to win and that they were uh, accepting their, uh, their loss a little bit too early in the game. And this goes to the point that I've heard a lot of coaches talk about, which is this generation of kid, sometimes it's hard to motivate some of them to perform well under pressure, or to be uh, really upset at the idea of losing. So what causes that, and what are the things behind it, and, and is this generation really different than the next? We're actually going to have an upcoming podcast episode that's going to talk about that, but for right now, I want you to listen to his comments in this post-game press conference, um, see what all the buzz is about uh, as it's made its rounds on social media. I think a lot of coaches, at least the comments that I've read, have said, yep, I agree with that, and finally somebody kind of put it out there to talk about, but I'm just wondering if you feel the same way and if you feel that it's fair, so I'm going to let you listen to the comments, and uh, and then we'll talk about it a little bit before we get to the big interview, but again, this is head coach Jeff Walls, University of Louisville, women's basketball, after a very tough second loss in a row. We just live, right now, the generation of kids that are coming through. Everybody gets a damn trophy. Okay? You finish last, you come home with, with, with a trophy. You kidding me? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It, it's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. You know, everybody thinks they should get a job. Everybody thinks they should get a good job. No, that's not the way it works. But unfortunately, that's what we are preparing for. Because you finish fifth, you, you walk home with this nice trophy, parents are all excited. No. I mean, I, not to be too blunt, but you're a loser. Like, we're losers. We got beat. So you lost. There is no trophy for us. But unfortunately, the way everybody, the way these kids are brought up today, there is a trophy. Because nobody wants anybody to have hard feelings. Nobody wants to get their feelings hurt. Well, unfortunately, in the real world, I'm not sure how it is with, with, with your all's jobs. But with mine, if you lose enough, you get fired. And that's just the way it is. And I, I'm trying to explain to our kids, like, hey, I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. Because when you go to get a job, 
there's competition. And what are you going to do to stand out? But unfortunately, we're not preparing these kids before they get to us, at least, to be ready for that. You know, when you play three, four AAU games in one day, you lose three of them, and then you win the, la- the, the last one, and everybody goes home happy. You're one in three. I mean, you know, the, I know it's a long time ago, but yeah, God darn the days we played, you, when you lost, you went home. There was no friendship bracket. You know, let's go on the left side to the friendship game so everybody can play two more games. No, you went home. You went home a loser, and then you worked at it if you wanted to be good. All right, so there you go, Coach. I am not saying that Coach Walls speaks for every coach in the country when he uh, when he makes those comments, and I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, he is describing every college athlete in the country. Because by and large, college athletes are incredible people, uh, and and most of them are uh, hardworking, dedicated, uh, just fantastic young men and women, the best of the best. However, there are a a fairly large number who would fit into this category where there's a little bit of entitlement, where they maybe don't dig deep and sacrifice as much as maybe some generations in the past. And there's they come with a little bit more baggage. And so I think he was talking about them and really in the process challenging his team to do something more with the abilities that they have and do something more with the opportunities that they have. And again, the fact that it came sort of in a public way and he voiced something that, that I've heard so many coaches say in private or that we talk about uh, in those workshops that, that I described uh, that we do on college campuses around the country. We hear a lot from it. I just thought it was very applicable and, and kind of spoke to where many college coaches feel this generation is at. I would love to hear your comments, though, on Twitter. You can tweet uh, and, and tag me in that tweet, at Dan Tudor, uh, and talk about the podcast. I want your opinion. Did he speak for college coaches? Is this a growing problem, or is that overblown, and it really comes down to, you know what, you just need to coach differently? I, I would love to know your uh, your opinion. And that's what, again, this forum is, and certainly our Twitter account is, and in general what we do is to try to give college coaches a voice and a forum for talking about recruiting and team development and the state of college athletics and recruiting. So we'll leave it there. Please post on Twitter. I would love to hear your comments. Uh, As for right now, we want to get to the meat of today's podcast, and that is this interview about revitalizing a team, taking over a program as the new coach or, uh, or taking your existing program and making it something different. And for that, we get started with today's big guest interview. She really has done some amazing things in a very short amount of time at this Division I program, and I am talking about our guest today, Coach Erica Brennan, the University of Southern Mississippi women's golf coach, who came into the program, took over for a coach that had uh, done a good job of building the program, had worked at the school as their coach for 15 years, and then retired. And Coach Brennan was asked to come in and set the the program uh, on a new course. Not exceptionally easy, because you're not talking about 
a program with just tons of money to throw around and spend uh, to rebrand themselves. You're not talking about a gigantic staff to do that with. Um, smaller D1 school, small staff, and a uh, and, and an unextraordinary budget. So how did she do it? And, and just for some perspective, here's what she's done in under 18 months with the program. Uh, she took over a program that was ninth in the conference when she got there. Her first year, they they catapulted up to third in the conference. In the process, set the school record for a 36-hole total uh, in, in a tournament and won two events in their first year. She they, they started that year ranked 187th in the country. They finished 134th, a jump of more than 50 spots. This year, in the 2016-17 season, she started at 134th, that ranking for her program, and currently, at the midway point, they are ranked 97th. So they broke into the top 100 uh, through this fall season, and then they will continue into the spring later in 2017. And they, in the fall, won two tournaments this fall and set the school record for a 54-hole uh, score. So it's safe to say things are going right. She's not done yet. Uh, there are still plenty of goals left to achieve, but she is a coach in the process of turning a program around. And the reason I wanted to talk to her and have you listen to her ideas, because no matter what position you're in, if there is some sort of new direction you want your program to go in, I think she is a coach who has good ideas, who is in the process of actually turning a program around. And uh, so you're going to hear her insights. And we started the interview by asking the question if she had to give advice to a coach on the most important thing to do at the start when you set up this, uh, this goal of coming in and, and uh, taking over a program the right way or revitalizing your current program, what would be the first thing she would recommend a coach should do? That's a great question. And I think the first thing you have to do if you're a new coach and come into a program is you really have to assess your team culture. I don't think that that can be ever overstated enough. Your team culture is really what's going to drive your performance at all times. And one of the things that one of my mentors has always told me is that if you're not controlling your team culture, your team culture is controlling you. So you have to be able to get out ahead of that and start assessing it. Okay, so I'll stop right there because our previous episode, episode five of the College Recruiting Weekly podcast was uh, Teresa Beckman, who comes in and coaches team culture, and we spent about an hour talking with her about how to develop team culture. So when when you went in uh, to Southern Miss and you realized uh, that you wanted to set up your own your own culture, and every coach that, that goes into a new program sort of wants to put their stamp on it, and they have their own unique culture they want to build. What did you identify? Did you sort of approach it as, here's what I want to do and turn it my direction, or is it natural for a coach to walk in and say, here's the things that I see going wrong with the program? So which, kind of which direction did you go? Did you try to fix it or just ignore what was going on and say, I'm going to overrun it with my plan or my culture? What was really cool about Southern Miss Golf is I don't necessarily think that anything was broken. I think it was a matter of really starting to learn the girls' personalities and figure out what sort of leadership style was going to resonate most with them. And I think a good coach, you can kind of bend and flex to some different things. 
The great thing about golf with a small roster is I think you can employ situational leadership. And what I explained to them is that I may not treat you all the same, but I'm going to treat you all equitably. So what one student athlete may need, a freshman or a sophomore, for example, in an ideal world, your senior shouldn't need that same level of attention to the micro level details. They should have those covered. So I think as long as you explain that at the outset is that, listen, I'm going to give each one of you what you need to be successful, then you can still be viewed as consistent and you can still be viewed as equitable, even though you're not treating them all the exact same. And, and I guess in your situation, and every every situation is different, and every coach is different, and certainly not every coaching transition, you know, revolves around something being broken that needs to be fixed. Because you took over for a coach that had been at the program for over a decade and retired, and so it was a smooth transition. But still, you wanted to put your own brand on it. And I guess I'm looking for what were the things that, as much as it was going right, what were the things that you noticed? you wanted to change or put your mark on and you, since you went down this road of of culture is the first part of turning around a program wh- what was it give me two or three things that you felt in a big picture sense needed to change about the culture that you wanted to institute i think a little bit the girls were uh, downtrodden is probably too strong of a word but i think that they had gotten to a point where they expected to maybe not perform as strong as they were capable of for whatever reason. So I think instant belief in them and their abilities and the ability to say, no, we will raise the bar. You are capable of greatness. And then really digging in and kind of coming alongside of them in the trenches to try to draw that out of them. And what we found was, uh, and any coach will tell you this, the more you dig in and really invest in those relationships, the more your student athletes are going to give it right back to you. And I think that that is actually the catalyst that can get you to the kind of change you want rather quickly. So a couple okay, of well, things. So, well, so, so stop right there. So you brought up something interesting. Uh, you mentioned that the, you know, it's, it's getting the kids to believe in that. And every coach that's listening to this says, yeah, I want my coaches, my, my kids to believe in what I say as a coach. So how was that received and how was that, what was that turnaround like? Because here you are coming in as the new coach and other coaches have gone in and, and you know, tried to, uh, you know, tried to do this and some have succeeded, many have failed. And so to the extent that you've been successful at it, what was, when you went in and said, hey, here's what needs to be different, uh, team, what, give me some examples of, of how that went. Were they ready for that? Were they resistant? Was it a mix what, what did you find when you were trying to kind of lay out the case? I think just like in any situation, you're going to have kind of your early adopters that were instantaneously wanting to buy into something new. And that's great. And I think if you can use those couple of early adopters to, to fuel the enthusiasm and fuel the energy towards change, you know, work with what you've got. And I think that it's not necessarily overcomplicated. I think coaches, we can we can always overcomplicate it. It's amazing. You know, it's not a handout. It's not a worksheet. It's not something that, you know, signifies instantaneous change. It really is those small things that you're doing day in and day out that'll make the difference over time. So for us, it was about setting vision and it was about no longer tolerating mediocrity and it was amazing how quickly the girls rose to that challenge 
and started to believe in themselves just because we, we sat down together and we created a pretty compelling vision of what we wanted our team to be, how we wanted to act each day to be able to get to that place. And then talking about just those daily commitments, you know, it's not fun every day. And, right. and that's the, that's the reality, but digging in when you don't feel like it, having a bit of self-sacrifice, you know, we like to tease, everybody talks about passion, right? Passion is this huge buzzword. And if we just have passion, everything will be great. And I think that that's, I think that's a myth. I think it's absolute bunk. Everybody that's playing college athletics has passion. So what are you prepared to sacrifice that your neighbor is not prepared to sacrifice? It's what, not enough to work yeah. hard. What, what you're talking about is moving it from theory into practice. And, and what I see in college athletics and in the teams that we work with, uh, the coaches we've gotten to talk to, is there is this sort of love affair in coaching with, uh, with books and uh, motivational leaders. And certainly there are good books and motivational leaders out there. And uh, coaches, I think, have come to sort of fall in love with, with certain, um, certain authors, certain principles, in certain theories, and yet I see so many that still struggle to put it into practice. And what I hear you saying, Coach Bennett, is that part of what you did, and I'm sure it came from reading and being influenced by by thought leaders and different people, but what I hear you saying is great to have the principles, great to have the theory, but at some point you have to sit down with your team and roll up your sleeves and say, what are we willing to do? And actually put it into practice. And that something that not a lot of coaches know how to do. So give me some ideas. Give the coaches who are listening to this an idea of the, the first two or three ways you did that just to put it into practical practice with your new program. That's a really great question, and it's absolutely true. I think that some people almost use books and thought leaders as, as just a really sophisticated way to procrastinate. Um, and, and, I know well, you know, it's, and, and I'll jump in there because what's interesting is you're, you're hitting on this, this, um, this psychological point that I've read about that people, when we order a book, when we're looking to do something, um, we're looking to, you know, learn a new skill. We're learning, or we're looking to, uh, figure out how to do something. We'll, a lot of times we'll order a book and what I've read psychologists say that sometimes when you order the book you have the book and that gives you the comfort that you know what I took a step in getting better and I have this book and it's on my shelf and I can look at it right now and uh, that makes me feel better that I've done at least I feel like I'm moving towards solving the problem but in reality you haven't solved anything you've ordered a book and it's sitting there or you take the next step. You've read the book, but now what do you do with it? And that's kind of again, that's where I'm I'm going like with what you, uh, what what you just identified is that is such a popular thing in college coaching right now is the book on your bookshelf. And you know, I think at some point there has to be that practicality. So sorry I interrupted, but that was just a really excellent thought that you that you had. Absolutely. So one of the things that we did immediately is we wanted to do action steps. And I know that that's a, like a kind of a buzzword and a general catch-all, but we sat down together. And the biggest thing that we wanted to communicate is that it can't be coach-driven. 
if it's coach driven, it's not going to be what your student athletes want. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be received in the way that your student athletes receive information. And it's, it just won't work. You, you won't go as quickly or as efficiently in the direction you want to go if the coach is the one pulling the sled. So the first thing that we tried to do was sit everybody down and say, okay, what is it that you guys feel like you haven't achieved at the level that you wanted to and then what are some things that you want your legacy to be do you want to be the team that gets to stay forever that hey we were the first team that set this thing you know on on a trajectory towards the top or whatever the case so letting them talk and you sitting back and listening it's amazing the things that you can uncover and what you learn is that it becomes so much more raw. It becomes so much more organic. And that to me was the way to create that buy-in. And then once you have the buy-in, they feel like it's their idea because it is. And then you as the head coach can almost sit back as the facilitator and then just work on steering the ship in the direction that they want to go. And what you'll find is it's not an adversarial relationship. I think a lot of times coaches feel that it's the coach versus the players. And that's something that 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 message is just absolutely lost on me and lost on our team. It is where we want to go and we are all working to get there. Boy, you've brought up another good point that that I didn't really know we were going to get into because the whole point of this is to figure out how you built uh, a great program and you've turned it around so quickly. The idea of turning things over to your team, that resonates with me because a lot of times when we'll be working with a client and they want us to help revamp their campus visit experience, I think they expect us to come in with this list of ideas or this workbook that we've developed and say, okay, here's how to do it. And we turn it back over to the kids and say, look, let's let's do this from the inside out. Let's let them decide what the visit and the tour should be like. And and amazing things happen. And so it sounds like you have taken the same philosophy of going to your kids and saying, basically, where, what are our principles? Where are we going to take this thing? And you guys are going to, you're going to drive this, uh, this process. And so more, most coaches don't do it that way. And I, I'm just, I'm wanting your opinion on this. Is it because coaches have pride and there's a little bit maybe of, that uh, that competitiveness that says, hey, I'm the coach, I set the direction. Because I think the idea for most coaches to turn something like that over to the team and sit back and let them define the program back to the coach scares the living daylights out of out of a lot of coaches that are listening to that that idea right now. So, I mean, what, what just speak sort of to your profession. What what is it about coaches that that if they're taking over a program, they're trying, or they're within a program, they've been there a couple of years and they want to turn it around. Um, it seems like they take more control and it, and it gets tighter. And what it seems to be that you're suggesting is maybe one of the secrets that you live by is that you turn it back over to the kids and let them direct it. So can you just sort of talk to that? It's counterintuitive, right? And it's scary and it's radical and it's certainly not what you would immediately think is what you want to do when when things aren't going your way us coaches we tend to want to tighten the reins I don't think you'll find many coaches out there that aren't type a that don't have a bit of ego or, or certainly a lot of pride and I think that you can harness that and make it you know steer it in the right direction so that it that it does help your team but for me I think 
what I found was, is, is, you know, I, in the interview, I laid out a four year plan, right? Because that's, that's what we want. And we sure. want to see coaches that have that long range vision. So in my mind, in this meeting, I've got, you know, these ideas of what I think is best and what I think will get us to where we want to go. And what I found was, is the girls wanted to get there quicker. If I sat back and listened, their commitments and their goals was on a faster pace than mine. And I said, all right, this is great. You know, of course you didn't tell them at the time, but I'm like, this is a team that wants to be gritty and wants to be tenacious and dig in. And it was so exciting for, for myself and for our assistant coach to see that from the outset. Well, once you know they're motivated and once you know that they actually want to get there in a quicker timetable than what you had in mind, at that point, the sky's the limit. So let's empower, let's make them know at the end of the day that they are loved and they, that they are loved beyond their athletic capability. And I don't think that there's any sort of limit to what an empowered student athlete can accomplish. So take back to that situation that you just described where the, the kids actually set up maybe more aggressive goals than you did once you gave them the chance. But flip it around for the coach that is going to come in and say, look, we need to turn this around. we got to be top three in the conference. You're going to do this and this. We've got to work hard. And, you know, basically using that coach voice to, to say, you know, fire them up. We're going we're gonna to get this done, and here's how we're going to do it. I almost think that when a coach does that, there's almost a natural resistance and now you're the pushy, bossy, pressuring coach, and you're yelling, and and yet when you turn it over to the kids, they sometimes set equally as aggressive or more aggressive goals. So I guess my question in that rambling statement is, do you feel like if you would have come in and said, look, team, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this and this. We're going to work hard, and then, and you need to follow me and do this and this and this, would you have had the same result as turning it over to the team and letting them set the agenda? Absolutely not. We would still be be a mediocre middle of the pack team, and and I say that within our conference. I mean, we're we're not beating down the doors. We're not you know headed to nationals just yet, sure. but we have made some good strides. And all credit to the girls, and and I think that uh, it's tough, you you know, because like I said, the coach we do have our vision and our plan. And I want to be careful because I, I think that you also don't want to go too far in that direction. You, you definitely don't want, you know, the old adage of the inmates running the asylum. Sure. But as long as you give them a consistent framework to work within, it's amazing. Millennials will rise to the task every single time. What was the thing that surprised you most about your team and the way they maybe took ownership of one particular part of uh, this these past this past year and a half that you've been uh, leading the program. What what's been the thing that that uh, looking back that really you know they they did better than you thought they would at a certain aspect of of you know helping to develop and and uh, set the program on a on a a pretty you know meteoric uh, rise within the conference. I think the thing that surprised me the most, in the most pleasant way is that we didn't have team captains. And because of that, we found out that leaders will lead when they're given an opportunity. Mm. So each girl on our team has their own little niche. And and without having to say it out loud, without having a team meeting, without you know writing it down, they all lead in their own areas. So we've got a senior 
you know, who, who takes the lead on, on kind of the accountability side of the house. Like, hey, ladies, don't forget that your stats are due tonight. Then we've got a sophomore who is incredibly Christ-centered, faith-based. She leads the team in prayer. You know, it hmm. wasn't like sitting down and saying, hey, you're going to be in charge of prayer. Right. That's just something that she feels compelled to do. And, and the list goes on and on. Academically, co community service, they all have found something that's their little area. They take ownership of it. And again, then as the head coach, you're sitting back and you're facilitating that. You're encouraging it. And, and, and off you go. I would also think that that needs to be or, or ends up being a challenge for most coaches in that um, I, I find that a lot of coaches have sort of their predefined roles, just like you mentioned, and they need kids to fit into those certain roles. And so, of course, our seniors are going to be the captains and, and this person's going to do this. And, and what you're saying is that it needs to be a little more fluid and you actually need to read the personalities and let them naturally take their spots. And there's going to be leaders, there's going to be followers, but everybody will have that role. Um, and I guess that would, if I'm, if I'm thinking about that, and if, if I'm a coach listening to this and I'm thinking, it almost sounds then that next year, and certainly two years, three years down the line, you start a season with a new group of incoming freshmen and you've lost some people due to graduation and you have to start all over again. You have to blank sheet of paper. You're not quite sure who's going to lead and who's going to follow and who's going to take the role or will you even have somebody in a particular role that uh, was present last year. And I would think that would be a little bit nerve wracking for coaches who very much want, very much want the system and the roles filled and, um, I mean, do you agree with that, that you're almost having to start over every year if you wanted to do it the way that you're describing, which is, sounds like a pretty successful way to do it? I don't. I actually think just the opposite is true. I don't think you can ever sacrifice the short term for the long term. The long term always has to be what you're focusing on and what you're working to improve. So what I've found is that culture affects your team four years at the time. What I mean by that, if a freshman sees something that a senior does, whether it's on the field, off the field, in the classroom, whatever, if it's negative, that freshman now thinks that that's a tolerable activity and that affects them for four years. So we talk about that with our team that, listen, you, you are impacting culture for the next four years. So what, what we do, I think, is, is we've built something now that is set up to last. And what the underclassmen are learning from those upperclassmen is exactly what will continue to push, you know, Jim Collins, push the flywheel for the mm -hmm. next four years at the time. So if everyone has their own area that they kind of, you know, unofficially are responsible for, well, then as your freshmen come in, they go, okay, perfect. I can lead in this area. I can follow in this area. And things kind of continue to be fluid, but it all seems to work out. Right. Okay, so let, let's move away from uh, rainbows and unicorns and everything's great. And you've, you know, you've done, you're doing a good job at, at Southern Miss turning that around. And, and I want to come back to that. But there are coaches out there that are in the midst of trying to turn their program around. Uh, there are coaches that will listen to this that just took over a program or are getting ready to. And along with that comes inevitably in almost every situation, the bad attitude, the kid with the bad attitude, the parent of, a, of one of your players that, that has a gripe, and maybe it was with the old program or the old coach or the department in general, 
Um, or you just have people. I've, I was talking to one coach that uh, is preparing to take over a program at a school that traditionally does not have an athletic, you know, a strong athletic history. And he's hearing the comment, you can't recruit here. This, we're never going to win. No team wins here. And this is a young fired-up coach who says, no, I think we can. And so you have these bad attitudes all around you, whether it's within your team or the department. Um, can you talk a little bit, without obviously getting specifics if you faced any of that, but as a coach you've had those, how do you handle that? And, and what have you learned through those situations the best way to handle a bad attitude, especially in a transition when you're trying to institute a new culture? I think it's the quickest thing that will stall progress. And if you let it affect you, and come on, of course I've let that stuff affect me. Nobody is immune to that. But if you if you sit there and, and get down in the dredges with it, it can grind you to an absolute halt. So, so what did you do to get past it? I mean, yeah. again, without the specific situation or a name, um, you like, can you roughly speak to, give us an example of, here's what happened and here's maybe how I used to deal with it or how I've seen other coaches, but here's how I dealt with it. And now I, I've, I'm able to move past it because I'm telling you that there are a lot of coaches that will listen to this that can't get past it or it does keep them down. We talk a lot. We have a, we have an international and domestic, so we have a lot of diversity on our team. And what we sat down and did is we talked about cultures and it was fascinating. So things that I used to view as a somewhat negative attitude, like for example, a lack of manners or, you know, that person didn't hold the door for someone else. I grew up in the South. That's how I was raised is that you have manners and, and we're hospitable and things like that. Well, what we found is that in other cultures, it's almost viewed as condescending or sarcastic. Like for wow. example, one of our girls said, if I ever said to my mom, yes, ma'am, she would have slapped me. I mean, that's that's considered defiant in their culture. So I think first off, an understanding that not everybody is going to be exactly like you, the ability to bend and flex to things that might not be like you. So on our team, you know, we've had one girl that that had had a, a fairly negative attitude for a time period, and, and it's gotten much better. But how did it get better? We have to dig into the why. And I think a lot of coaches miss that, and myself included sometimes. We immediately want to pull and prod and, and bring back into the fold, and we don't ever dig in and figure out the underlying reason of why they had a bad attitude. And especially coaching a team full of, of girls and, and women, you know, I can be temperamental. There's days that I don't bring my best attitude to practice. Is that fair? No. But is it the truth? Yes. Uh, I, I certainly try not to, but there may be something that's completely unrelated to golf that's happening. So sure. dig in and find out why. And if you can do that, and again, prove that you care about them beyond their ability to, to make a shot or score a goal, you'll find that those, those attitudes tend to correct themselves. And, and I want to talk about parents real quick, if I can. Yeah, absolutely. We involve parents a lot in our program. And again, that's maybe counterintuitive to how a lot of coaches think. But for me, being on the early end of a millennial myself, my parents are my best friends. They've been, been, been involved in countless decisions that I've made over the years. And, and I think back to, you know, had my coach in college just completely shut my parents out, 
I wouldn't have liked that. That would have made me uncomfortable. So these are kids that are used to having their parents involved. So we involve them. We do have a rule. Uh, You know, we, we, I will talk to parents about anything under the sun except for playing time. And not only your daughter's playing time, but anyone else's playing time on the roster. So if you want to talk about fundraising efforts, you want to talk about fishing, I'll talk about anything other than what is, you know, how we're making decisions on who's playing. But we do. We involve parents. We, we have a tradition that we take a selfie with any of the parents that come to our tournaments. We have a tradition that we'll invite parents to dinner one night or we'll allow our kids to go and have dinner with their parents one night during the tournament. And again, to me, that creates community. It creates the type of buy-in that you want. And I don't think that you can say that you're about providing a family for your student athletes when they're away from home if you're not then going to embrace their actual family when they Hmm. show up for your kids' games. Yeah. So, okay. So you take that and you're creating this community. You're creating the family and you are, um, you're, you're setting up good philosophies that match what you, that you, what you want at some point that has to then start making an impact on the course, on the court, on the field, wherever your sport is coached uh, and played. So here you take over a program and uh, it uh, for a retiring coach, and it had uh, not necessarily done well in conference the last, uh, you know, as you were taking it over. Are, how much of the philosophy that we've been talking about, how much of going in and talking, involving the parents, and all the different things that, that we spent the first now 30 minutes or so of this conversation talking about, how much of that then relates to performance uh on the course, on the court, on the field, in your experience, and what causes that? If if that's true, if if that philosophy and you doing that as you're turning this program around as a coach, why does it make a difference on the field? Like, just I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that on what it is that that all of a sudden sparks a kid and and they start performing better because of some of the things you've spent time laying out for the people who are listening to this. It's that level of investment. You know, you can't change actions without changing the underlying thoughts and beliefs. You have to get that part in the correct order or you won't ever get to where you want to go. So to me, it's a natural progression. I mean, the things that I think become my beliefs. The things that I believe impact how I act. So to me, it's not necessarily about, you know, anything that coaches have to do to then get it to transition into action but if you can if you can really work on changing those underlying thoughts and beliefs the actions then take care of themselves so how give me an example of maybe uh, again without naming names one of the kids who maybe you saw that where her scores in the last year or two uh, before might have been lower and all of a sudden she took that jump and you could assign some of what we've been talking about uh, to uh, to that or, or can you point to that kind of an example Absolutely. We've got a senior on our team now who played in the in the five spot for, for the majority of her time at the school and hadn't been making steady progress, uh, you know, improving her scoring average each year. But this year, she's improved exponentially. And I think that you can attribute it back to, the, you know, she's she's a blue collar kid, so she's never not known the value of hard work and she's always worked hard 
the difference is in this summer, I think she really started to sense and feel that she belonged near the top not just in that fifth spot that she had kind of, I don't want to say she got comfortable because she didn't. She's, she's one of the hardest workers on the team, but I think that the belief was I'm the number five player. And this Uh. summer working really hard to say, no, you're not, you are so much more than the number five player. And, and once she started to feel and believe that on her own, it's not that she's suddenly working harder. Uh, because I don't think the kid was ever capable of working harder than she already was. But now that she changed kind of the psychology behind it, she, I mean, she's lighting it up on the course for us this year and being a staple, you know, near the top of the lineup, not having to stress about requalifying. And it's not anything that I think she has done differently from a work ethic perspective. It's the work that she did this summer between her ears. Hmm. Do you feel like I was talking to another coach who recently, well, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, took over a men's program, and he mentioned to me one time that his biggest fear was, you know, after after establishing some of the things that you've been talking about, he didn't want to plateau. That was the word that he used for the program. He always wanted to find ways to to get better and to uh, to do better. And I guess I'm wondering, what is it? Uh, kind of about when you step into a program, there's that excitement of the first year. There's that excitement of the first year and a half, two years, and you're you're able to say, well, I'm a new coach, new program, we're going this direction. And then, again, that plateau tends to set in, and you kind of end up where you end up. So what is – have you thought about that? Like what do you do to make sure you continue to challenge yourself and your players and the way you look at things? And, and how, do, how are you going to do that? Because, again, you're still on the front end. And I think a lot of coaches would be able to look back and say, yeah, I let that happen. I let that plateau. I set up some good things at the start, but then I I, I kind of let it go. So how does a coach prevent that from happening? I think about it all the time, Dan. It's probably what's in the forefront of my mind most days is battling complacency. And I think that the easiest part is what's happened so far closing the gap from being ranked almost 200 to getting into the top 100 is actually a far easier proposition than now going from inside the top 100 to inside the top 50. Uh, it, it's exponentially more difficult to now do what's what's laid out in front of us. So how do you keep yourself challenged and how do you keep yourself motivated? For me, endless optimism. It's very difficult to get me to, to get down on anything, uh, but embracing that challenge. I love feeling like my back's up against the wall. I love the, the, the almost stress or pressure of feeling like maybe I can't achieve any more and then pushing through that to, to kind of know your, your own worth or your own value. But I'll say this, you cannot do it alone. It, It is not, it is not a me thing. It's an us, it's a we, and just embracing that, that uneasiness or the, or the unsettling moments. And you got to raise the bar. And I know that that's a, that's kind of a platitude, but what can you be doing differently? And this is a Joshua Medcalf and Jamie Gilbert thing, but what can you be doing differently to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be? 
And there's always an answer for that, no matter how big or how small that gap is, there's always an answer of something that you can be doing to close that gap. So you mentioned optimism, and one of the things I've liked in getting to know you, and and, uh, from the first time we met, we did a workshop at your previous school, St. Leo in Florida, great place. Um, But you are this happy, optimistic, high-energy person how much does optimism play into kind of getting through that that stage of developing a change in a program? Because not every coach is naturally optimistic, and I'm sure you have to force yourself some days. Um, so can you just talk about just the attitude of optimism when you're in coaching and certainly when you're taking over a program and trying to institute a, a program turnaround uh, into this? Because like I said, with with that previous coach that I mentioned a few minutes ago, you have always, it seems like, and maybe this is true for you, it seems like there's always going to be people around you that say, hey, you can't do that here, or nah, we're just not that good, or just there's that negative, and people, I think in, in college athletic departments, there's always those people who are a little bit negative, so can you just sort of speak to the optimism part of this equation? Yeah, absolutely. Your inner voice has to be louder than any of those outside voices. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, I I would say that, and again, I coach golf, so there's not, there's not as much of kind of the social media negativity or things like that. But, you know, if you coach a higher profile sport, I would encourage you to get off social media. Don't listen, don't (laughs) read it. Don't be a part of kind of the negativity. And, and let your own voice and your self-voice be louder than anything that's coming at you from the outside. But as far as optimism, it's just never occurred to me to be anything but that. Like to me, hope is what, what we have and hope is what we can latch on to. For me, you know, being a Christ-centered person, I, you know, my, my faith and in, in that comes from something higher than me. So at the end of the day, the great news is, is I'm not going to be judged if I was a good golf coach or not. And, and so that's what I try to keep a hold of every day. But I also try to, you know, look at golf as, as my chosen, you know, missionary ground and, and try to work in that space and, and be somebody that helps student athletes kind of discover who they are and become a better version of themselves. But but gracious me, I, endless optimism. Again, if, if your thoughts and actions are what determine, or I'm sorry, if your thoughts and beliefs are what determine your actions, then why would you allow yourself to be negative? That will yeah. impact and, and manifest itself into negative actions. Well, once you go down that route, I mean, my gracious, how hard would it be to climb out of that tunnel? So it's just, for me, it's never occurred to me to be anything but pretty pretty happy and pretty optimistic my gracious, we get to coach college athletics. How how good do we really have it at the end of the day? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You. I mean, you're in the in the toy store of American business. Uh, this is. I, I tell coaches all the time, you're not in the real world. So uh, enjoy it and embrace it and and have fun with it. So there's a couple of big themes that you've talked about, especially the idea of turning over kind of the development of the energy over to your team and letting them set the agenda, certainly optimism uh, being a point of, uh, you know, a point of strength um, involving the parents and and opening up the communication as you're taking over a program. I kind of wanted to end this talk with uh, knowing that you've given us those tips. 
Um, I'm going to ask you to give me the three things that you would view as big mistakes. Just sort of quickly bullet point the big mistakes that you see coaches in your profession making when they try to take over and turn around a program. And then also the three things that you would recommend they do first. Because uh, I think the reason I want those two is because I think coaches learn well from the mistakes of their peers. And they're always interested in what their peers uh, maybe are doing wrong and what they could avoid. And then also, uh, just again, like the first three things that you would do if you were going to help a coach turn around and, and put their own brand and mark on a program. And you can start with either list. You promised me you were going to make me dig deep, and this is definitely making me do that. Um, <laughs> the first mistake coaches make is believing that millennials are the enemy. I hear it all the time. You know, millennials are entitled. Millennials are this or that. No, millennials are amazing. Millennials are, you know, amazingly quick at adopting and, and adapting to, to emerging technology, emerging ideas. I mean, they're lightning fast. Take that and use that as a strength. Millennials are not the enemy would be okay. the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I think is throw away your game plan, throw away how it's always worked in the past. What has worked in the past is not what's going to work today and what's going to work in the future. So kind of the same way that the millennials, you know, adapt and, and flex, coaches have to be willing to do that as well. The third mistake that I think can be tragic is you absolutely must be authentic. And it's amazing what this generation can do to sniff out, you know, what they perceive to be phony or to be fraudulent. You are so I, right. <laughs> I like to tease. I like to tease that that I'm like the preppiest redneck golf coach ever. <laughs> um, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm equally comfortable in paisley and pearls as I am, you know, in a deer stand in camo riding a four-wheeler. <laughs> but whatever you are, I mean, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever you are, be an authentic version of yourself. So, you know, for me, I am optimistic. So I'm not a yeller. I'm not going to yell and scream at my team because that's not who I am. Right. Um, whatever you are, be the most authentic version of it. Because I think that that more so than ever, people are able to sniff out that that kind of fraudulent feeling. Right. So those, I think, would be the three mistakes okay so the three things then that a coach that is in the midst of or preparing to or just they've been at the school for for 10 years and they want to just have a fresh start um the thing that they should or the three things that they should be doing first things when they take over the program or decide that they want to change the direction and uh and tone of their program what what would your recommendations be uh, for their top three Number one would be to immediately go back to the first day that you ever coached at your very first job, whether that was a GA position, high school, wherever you got your start, and think about what it felt like to either walk into that gym or walk onto that field or walk onto that course that first day and, and let your mind really get back to that moment when you were maybe naive, but you were certainly, you know, gung-ho and we're, we're going to go in there guns a-blazing and make this great. So get back to what that felt like and then make yourself exude that each and every day. 
because it's easy to get bogged down in, you know, the daily grind of it all. But remember that big picture of how it felt and why it's the most amazing job on earth to be a coach. So that would probably be for anybody that has maybe been at it for a little while and, and is sure. either plateauing or, or, you know, losing their edge, if you, if you will. The second thing I would say is dig in and meet with your peers. Go talk to other head coaches at your school. Talk to them about everything under the sun. How do you recruit? Let me see some of your mailed pieces. What do you do for visits? How do you handle adversity? What do you do if the ref doesn't give you the call you want? Talk to them about everything. That's an endless treasure trove of resources that are free and that are literally next door. So take advantage of kind of the knowledge base of the other head coaches at your school. And then the third thing that I would say that a coach can do, a new coach or a coach that's looking to change a program, is not, like, don't shy or don't run away from allowing your student athletes to kind of set that tone and set that direction make sure that they feel heard, make sure that they feel appreciated and just love the heck out of them. Uh, you know, whatever the statistic is of how many are going on to play professionally, I mean, it's minute. So don't ever, don't ever seek a win in exchange for the ability to love on a student athlete and make them feel confident and make them feel ready to go out and tackle the world. And that's going to wrap it up. Coach, we want to thank Erica Brennan, the head women's golf coach at the University of Southern Mississippi, for sharing her insights and giving away a couple of her secrets. Hey, here's an idea, Coach. If you want, go over to dantutor.com. Check out the free resources we have for you there. And most of all, tell your friends in your athletic department to subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, have a great recruiting week.